When two FAA-certified Boeing 737 MAX jets crashed a few years back, it raised questions about the FAA's certification process for new airplane designs. Members of Congress wanted to know if there was anything the U.S. could learn from the European Union's procedures. The Government Accountability Office compared the two, and for what it found, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with GAO's Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues, Heather Krauss. What we found in looking at the two systems is that the uh, activities and standards um, that the two countries carry out, or the two systems carry out for certifying new designs of airplanes are largely similar. A lot of that really does stem from a U.S., European Union, or EU uh, bilateral agreement that was developed back in 2008, which helped to harmonize those two processes, recognizing that aviation and manufacturing of aircraft is sort of a global system. Um, And so they had developed a bilateral agreement to help streamline the two um, entities to be able to verify each other's safety certification of new aircraft designs. So we found a lot of similarities in terms of their activities and approaches. We looked at um, how they, their approaches to working with manufacturers as they're going about designing uh, new aircraft or certifying the design of new aircraft. Um, you know, we did find that they both heavily rely on manufacturers to support the design certification process, but the way they go about um, their kind of their approaches to involving them and reviewing the manufacturer's work differ. So again, you know, they're, they're both relying and sort of looking at um, and approving, you know, staff within these companies and these manufacturers to be able to to carry out um, certification activities on behalf of these aviation authorities. But where we saw some differences were in, in, you know, they both look at the entire package that these manufacturers are putting forward when it comes to um, getting approval for airplane designs. Um, But the level of review differs. So you have FA who's looking at the completeness of the overall package and sort of the determination. So how, the companies are showing that they comply with safety and other standards in high-risk areas. Um, but, you know, FA doesn't typically look at and conduct independent reviews of the technical basis for some of those compliance activities that the manufacturers are putting together. Um, in contrast, what we found in the European system is that they use a risk-based approach for looking at um, more specific acts of the of the certification package from the manufacturers and they're um, also you know evaluating some of the technical basis for those compliance findings that they're they're presenting to the aviation authority for approval and so i mean i'm not gonna ask you to speculate here on uh, you know what could have happened and everything like that but i mean both uh, agencies did approve the 737 max and you know the easa may have been a little bit faster on grounding it but other than that i mean the pro any of the differences were moot in the case of the 737 i imagine or would the esa uh, comprehensiveness if the faa had shown that would maybe you know some other problems been caught a little bit earlier maybe and once again you can tell me if you if you can't answer that question <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't get into that. Obviously, um, you know, there's been a lot of different investigations and looks at FAA's process, including a number of recommendations to FAA on how it can improve its process based on what happened with the certification of the MAX. And so, 
um, you know, that's something that they're, the agency continues to work through, and it'll be important for them to follow through on uh, making those improvements to the system. And I'm curious um, if you heard about any of the differences between the two agencies when speaking to the companies, uh, and what were you mm-hmm. told about in their dealings with the EASA and FAA? Yeah, they, you know, we, we, as you said, we met, uh, spoke with both of them, and they were helpful in offering some additional context on how the process is applied um, in the two systems. And so, you know, as we were able to make this assessment and this comparative analysis, their perspectives were um, important in us understanding um, how the different, like what were the differences between the two systems based on their experiences within each each one. Um, you know, with the conversations that we had with Boeing, we're really focused on understanding how they um, work through the FAA process and our conversations with Airbus, we're understanding how they um, interact with the um, European um, Safety Authority. So where do you see these recommendations going? Obviously, this was requested by Congress, um, but will the FAA be taking these into consideration in those review processes that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, as we understand, and, and you know, our report offers some more insight on um, some of the specifics and the different reviews that have um, been conducted uh, related to FAA and, and recommendations made to them on how to improve their certification process. Um, you know, they're in some of the initial stages of assessing those changes and improvements um, and, you know, things like expanding the use of technical advisory boards within the certification process and also looking at, you know, how they um, how manufacturers ensure that employees involved in the certification um, determinations are, you know, free from undue influence. And so those types of things, FAs is taking some steps to address, but it will take it will take some time for them to work through those. Yeah, speaking of taking time, I imagine that this will mean a longer uh, regulatory process for getting a new aircraft approved, um, probably rightfully so after what we saw. Um, but what changes do you think we can expect to that um, process uh, going forward? You know, there there are a number of, of changes that FAA is starting to work through. Um, you know, they're looking at, you know, how they use technical advisory boards. Um, in terms of looking at the information the companies are presenting um, related to um, certification of their airplane design, um, you know, they're, they're also looking at, um, you know, various uh, recommendations to uh, help update some internal guidance in terms of how they make certain decisions in the, in the certification process, you know, again, looking at uh, how manufacturers are ensuring that the folks involved in the certification on behalf of FAA are not influenced or have no undue influence on on sort of the decisions and things that they're, um, the processes that they're involved in. Yeah, and I'm curious, uh, just as a last question here, I mean, on the technicality that is needed in, you know, this unique industry, this is kind of a unique regulatory role that the FAA plays where the manufacturer kind of has to do its own regulation and then the FAA decides whether or not that it is doing that self-regulation well enough. Uh, I just was wondering if you could speak to that aspect of things and how that can kind of make things a little bit different than other industries that uh, the government regulates. Yeah, um, you know, in in the case of uh, looking at and certifying um, the design of new aircraft, um, 
you know, they, like I said, they, they do rely heavily on manufacturers, um, you know, much, much of when in talking to folks and understanding, understanding that process, they, the thinking behind that is that they're leveraging private sector resources, you know, to improve efficiency in the process and sort of lessen the time and government resources needed to carry out, um, carry out the certification process. You know, FAA um, has acknowledged that it doesn't have all the resources, you know, it would need to do to, to carry out the processes. And so that's where they're, you know, relying on the manufacturers, um, you know, expertise and involvement to help carry out the certification of, of new aircraft designs. Yeah, and after you all, know, but, but oh, go, oh, sorry, both, go, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm sorry. I, just to add, you know, both FAA and um, the European uh, Union, Union Safety uh, Aviation Authority, you know, both of them are assessing whether manufacturers are qualified to take part in the process. So, you know, we did find some similarities there. Um, and once they're approved, you know, those manufacturers are creating these internal groups, you know, where where the uh, the aviation authorities, FAA and, and, the, and the system over in Europe, um, you know, authorize those authorities to conduct certifi- certification activities on their behalf. Heather Krauss, Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the GAO, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was 
I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities 
uh, is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.